Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and why you certainly are not here to make friends. Every episode, you get a new pair of feminists to talk about the thing we can't get off our minds. And today, you've got me, a former waver, Marsha Challen. I'm a historian of African-American life and culture and author of the book, Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. And I'm here today with fellow writer and academic, Danielle Lindemann, author of the new book, True Story, What Reality TV Says About Us. Thanks so much for having me. Professor Lindemann, if I may, Throughout the book, you introduce readers to the heavy hitters of sociology. You've got Durkheim, you've got Foucault, you've got Mills, and the heavy hitters of reality TV. We've got Kim, we've got Snooki, we've got Honey Boo Boo. What sparked your interest in connecting what I imagine are your two great intellectual loves? Well, you imagine correctly. So I've been teaching a course at Lehigh University called Sociology of Reality TV, for a few years now, in which we pair episodes of reality TV with, you know, these heavy hitters in sociology. Um, it's a pretty popular course, obviously, because it's reality TV. A lot of students want to take it. And I always thought that I could, you know, turn it into a pretty interesting book. So that was sort of the seed of the idea for the book. So as a sociologist, you have written about a number of topics, including um, commuter marriages, the sexual practices of American people. What is it about reality TV that you think is such a helpful lens for understanding sociology? Yeah, so it's kind of interesting because I have written on quite an array of topics. And it's kind of like <laughs> one of those like Sesame Street things, like what do these three things have in common? So in general, I say I'm a sociologist of what we call deviance, um, which is a loaded term, but it just really means in sociology, it just means behavior that falls outside the norm. Um, and we often argue that paradoxically, by looking at people who engage in atypical behaviors, we can better understand a society more generally. Um, so I've done this in a few different arenas. But when it comes to reality TV, we can sort of look at people on reality TV and say, well, these are like wacky, zany, outrageous people. They have nothing to do with us, right? But actually, it's by looking at these extremes, at these caricatures, that we really can better understand kind of fundamental elements of American society. We're going to take a break here, but when we come back, we'll get into all things reality TV. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX is The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. Hey, Waves listeners. If you're loving the show and want to hear more, subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. While you're there, check out other episodes too. You'll find discussions about gender violence, romance novels, and even edible arrangements. 
Welcome back to The Waves. I'm here with Danielle Lindemann. One of the things I love in the book, and I think we're maybe of the same generation because our touch points of reality TV are very similar, but you in many ways narrate your life story with the reality shows that impressed upon you a sense of normalcy and excitement through the years. And I could completely relate. So when my husband and I (laughs) watched a lot of my super sweet 16 in our early courtship and Every time I think of an overindulged teenager crying because they wanted a white BMW and not a silver one, it kind of gets me choked up. Like, it's a strange thing that reminds me about a certain period of time. Happy birthday. That's yours. I got a booty, booty, booty. Watch me do my thing. What the hell? I don't want my car now. Don't tell me my car now. I told her not to get it. I wanted to do my party. I didn't want the car. That's not even the car you wanted. I'm such an idiot. I just went off. You talked about the first time you really got into the real world. And so when you think about reality TV and what it's done to shift or inform our cultural sensibilities, um, you know, how do we understand it as marking different periods of time in the kind of cultural imagination broadly? Hmm, That's interesting. You know, and I was actually just thinking about this earlier. You know, I think we like to think of things as linear Right. And in reality, they're they're not. So, I mean, we could say like there, you know, there are different periods in reality TV and there's like the pre-Kardashian period and post-Kardashian period. But in actuality, you know, I think, you know, it's it's very postmodernist to say, but like everything old is new again and everything old from reality TV gets recycled again. You know, now there are shows on Netflix that build themselves as social experiments, which was something that happened, you know, in the early 2000s as well. I'm not necessarily sure that I could even sort of pinpoint sort of different error. I think there have been patterns in the types of reality TV that we've seen. Um, but then it always, you know, it's like uh, like the fashions from the 90s, right? It always gets like oh boomeranging back, right? Do you look on campus and your students look like you did in the 90s? They dress the way that I dressed <laughs> when I was when I first encountered reality TV. You know, one of the things that I think is so interesting when we talk about entertainment is just how segmented it is. And I think one of the reasons why people don't take reality TV very seriously is because it's features and marketed towards women. And so, you know, if it pivots around these ideas that are like ladies' interests, relationships, wealth and consumerism, family dynamics, do you think that plays a role in the ways that we talk about reality TV or even in your decision to take reality TV seriously as an academic? Sure. I I mean, I truly believe that one of the reasons that we see reality TV as a guilty play, I mean, there are a few different reasons, but one of the reasons is because it is gendered, right? It's geared toward women viewers. It's often women on the screen, right? Like the Real Housewives with female-dominated casts. Um, and yeah, and like you know, we tend to devalue cultural products related to women, right? We do that with movies. We do that with music, right? Why not do that with reality TV? I mean, I think people often have a certain hostility about reality TV that, you know, it doesn't really have any nutritional value to it, right? You can't really get anything from it. But first of all, I think that's wrong, and hopefully I dispel that myth in my book. But also, even if that were true, there are a lot of things like that, right? Like, there's no nutritional value from sports, but people watch it and they enjoy it and they get something out of it. Um, but we don't go around calling football a guilty pleasure. It's interesting to think about why, and I think one of the reasons why is because, again, it, that's something that's gendered masculine, right? Well, do you think this idea of, like, you know, the guilty pleasure, is it because we're looking into the personal lives of people, you know, we don't know? Or is the guilt the kind of joy from the Michigas, because 
I feel like the more disastrous a show, the more popular it is. Joy from the Michigas. I like that. Um, yeah, I think, well, there's guilt, right? Because we're also watching people who are doing outrageous things, right? Things that are socially deviant, things that polite people in polite society generally do not do, right? Like peeing on a pregnancy test in front of a camera, right? And so I think part of that is we feel kind of contaminated by that, that illicit behavior, certainly. But I do think a large part of it is also this gender element. I'm glad you brought up the peeing on the pregnancy test because I actually, I have a few shows that like you see stuff like that. And what's interesting about reality television, if you're looking at, you know, your housewives, there's always this sense that there is a boundary, which is kind of strange. So, you know, some people will say, I don't let people film in my bedroom. I believe the Countess Luanne Delaseps of New York said that for many years, like there's certain parts of our lives you won't see, or like when people have minor children that who are just not there, yeah, who are just not there, but are referred to, and that's you, Sonia Morgan. Like, there are these ways that even within this kind of ruleless entity, there's rules of engagement. What do you make of the ways that reality television production kind of sets their own standards or like? the line that's drawn when someone gets kicked off of a show versus someone's allowed to come back after acts of violence, for instance. I can't speak that intelligently to how those decisions kind of play out. I mainly am looking at reality TV, you know, from the consumption perspective, so looking at it like as text. But I think it's interesting because those decisions oftentimes seem, they don't seem very consistent, right? Usually related to, well, is that person bringing in an audience, right? That's what it's all about, right? Like, is that person powerful enough to say, hit slap someone and get away with it, right? Or are they not? Um, Just like in real life, right? Um, Where people in positions of power are able to get away things that people who are not, are not able to get away with. You know, throughout the book, this theme of power is so important in terms of the ways that reality television becomes this source of economic power, of, um, you know, kind of fame. And one of the things that comes out a lot in reality television today are the ways that women are able to create careers out of becoming personalities. I think that probably Kim Kardashian is, you know, the masterclass in that. And Kris Jenner facilitates that. You talk about Cardi B and her ability to platform I think more people consider her a rapper than a reality TV star now, or just all the housewives. I think Bethany Frankel is probably the best example of monetizing that presence. How do you think of the ways that, you know, women particularly are able to become wealthy through this vehicle, how it shapes, you know, how we consume reality TV as well? It does tend to be women, right, who are the ones who are, you know, pulling in the spawn con, who, because again, it te- reality TV tends to be populated by women. So, of course, the people who are going to be successful are going to be women, usually. Uh, not always, right? Donald Trump is another example. But yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting, though, because the things that they're becoming successful for often tend to be very gendered, right? And I talk about this in the book, like with the Kardashians, if you look at their product lines, it tends to be lines that are sort of aligned with ideas of normative femininity, right? Like lip kits and makeup and body shapers. Body (laughs) shapers. Literally was my next thing I was going to say, right? Body shapers. And then there's someone like poor Rob who like can't get a sock line off the ground. Oh, those were so sad. I know. But he doesn't have that like well of normative femininity to draw from. Um, so I think, or Bethany Frankel, who, you know, cooking, right, is associated with women and femininity. So I think, 
Yes, they have been able to do that successfully, oftentimes because they're drawing on tropes and things and activities that are we see as coded as, as feminine. Speaking of power and reality TV shows and, I don't know, grave decisions, from my opinion, Donald Trump's presidency, the election of a reality TV show star to the presidency, do you think that this changes the perception of reality TV? Do people see it as more powerful or like more frightening because in many ways, Donald Trump, even before the apprentice was always like playing himself on television sitcoms, like in the nineties, he, he was a character and then reality TV kind of gave him a format. But what do you think the Trump presidency does in terms of people's perception of the form? You know, it's interesting because you would think in some ways it would legitimate it, right? In some ways, people would stop and say, oh, wait, no, we have to pay attention to this thing that we thought was just frivolous that's happening over here because, you know, majority of people are watching it. It's a lot of the TV that they're consuming. And look, it has real, you know, tangible effects that we see in the world. But I, I haven't seen that shift happening in, in academia. Otherwise, you know, I think, I, I don't know, for some reason, people just don't put that together and say, okay, well then, you know, this thing happened, this like momentous thing happened, you know, maybe they don't think that it's because of reality TV, but it's at least partially because of reality TV, right? Because that gave him a platform. We're going to take a break here, but if you want to hear more from Danielle Lindemann and myself on another topic, check out our Waves Plus segment, Is This Feminist?, where today we're debating whether The Bachelorette is feminist. And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast and bonus content of shows like this one. To learn more, go to slate.com slash thewavesplus. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to The Waves. In the book, you arrange the chapters to look at the connection between the shows and what they show about us. And I love how you arrange it. You know, you talk about the self, couples, groups, families, childhood, class, race, gender, sexuality, and your topic of expertise, deviance. All of my favorite topics. I'm curious, prior to the reality format, how do you think our society collectively came to understand these dynamics and concepts. So how has reality TV been an education for all of us? 
I don't know if reality TV has been an education for all of us. I think it holds the potential to be educational. Um, I think most people don't view it that way, obviously, as we've discussed. Again, I think most people kind of look at it and say, oh, guilty pleasure for listening, even if they like it, right? They don't necessarily look too deeply into it. Um, But sort of one of the major arguments that I make in the book is that actually by showing us ourselves in this kind of amped up, caricatured, outrageous form, we can really better come to an understanding of ourselves. And sometimes that's the, you know, the, the most negative things about ourselves, right? The inequalities that persist, in society, or racism, or sexism, or classism, materialism, um, right? Um, but at the same time, I think we can learn um, some really beautiful things about ourselves from watching reality TV. Reality TV is an incredibly diverse medium, um, and yes, sometimes that diversity takes the form of stereotypical representations, and you know we need to be attuned to that. Um, but at the same time, it is has been historically more diverse than other forms of TV. Um, so there are things that we can learn from reality TV that we wouldn't have learned from the scripted television format. I'm not sure if that answers your question. Well, you know, I'm I'm curious about this because I think about you know my early generation's reality TV was talk shows. It was the Oprah show, people disclosing personal things, but in a really kind of tightly controlled format. But this issue of race and gender, I think, is really interesting because I used to watch, <laughs> I used to watch a lot of the Canadian wedding shows where like couples would plan a wedding and either you like judge them for spending too much or they're oh, like, yeah, like four choices. weddings. Yeah. So, yes. Mm-hmm. And the reason I liked those shows is because there was a racially diverse cast. That's like one of the biggest draws where I could see people of a lot of backgrounds engaging in spending too much on a wedding. Or like one of the reasons why I liked House Hunters is because sometimes they started to have queer couples and they would have couples with uh, multiracial and multiethnic families. And so there's a way that like reality TV sometimes is showing us a world we want to see (laughs) versus the world that like exists around us. Um, But I'm curious about, you know, what your thoughts are on some of the, for lack of a better way of framing it, some of the racial reckoning that has happened on some of the reality shows, particularly Bravo, in trying to break away from all white casts and bring in, you know, people of color into these formats. I just want to touch on something that you said, though, which is really interesting to me, is that if you look at these shows, right, yeah, scripted shows do have interracial couples, they do have queer couples, but that's like, that's their role in the show, right? That's part of the story. It's always like, we're an interracial. But on House Hunters, it's not, we're an interracial couple looking for a house. We're just a couple looking for a house. So they're kind of unmarked in that way. It's really interesting. But yeah, this moment of racial reckoning, bravo, The Bachelor, right? finally. <laughs> very well. No, I agree. Not so good. As I write about in the book, right, these shows are like reflecting American society, which is incredibly racialized. It's incredibly racially stratified, right? Like the fact that on The Bachelor, it tends to be like middle class white people linking up with other middle class white people, right? That's that happens, right? Because with that, because of these, these are the patterns that exist in American society. That, that's not to say that the show like doesn't have the moral obligation to diversify, right? But they're showing something that exists, right? It's not like that racism. It's not like that stratification is just confined to The Bachelor or just confined to the Real House. Like there's a reason, right? Obviously, that these are all white casts of housewives, and then they're the all black, the Potomacs of the world. One of the things I find kind of fascinating about the racial turn in um, reality TV. The only cast that seemed to, like, 
be able to do it without making a deal of it was Miami. And I think it's because of the location. I'm a model, but not always a model citizen. If you don't like my smile, then don't look my way. My husband's a top plastic surgeon in this town, and I'm his best creation. I may speak five languages, but my true language is independence. A lot of the women are of Cuban descent. They're living in a very kind of Pan-American city. And so the inclusion of Haitian and Haitian-American cast members didn't seem to do the same thing that it did when, you know, Real Housewives of New York had a Black cast member and everyone lost it. Like, no... I know. No one could do. Well, that's fascinating to me because New York is such a diverse New York city. city. I know it's New York City, and then you're like looking it's at them, weird. and you're like, you've never heard of white fragility ever, and you live in New York City. I it's it's, but it just goes to show, right? You can live in a diverse city, right? But at the same time, be incredibly stratified, right? In terms of where you are spatially, in terms of who you interact with, and you know the other kind of draw of reality TV that I think is also really important when you talk about some of these sociological ideas about power is social class. There are reality shows that show people with tremendous wealth. And then there's the shows that are really about regular people. And it's it's kind of strange how both can be equally alluring if they're framed in the right way. You know, I think of a show like 90 Day Fiance, where a lot of people are very kind of working class people and then occasionally they're very wealthy people and there's these perceptions of you know the wealth of in the united states and you know the perceptions of a lack of wealth in other countries how do you think reality tv has kind of engaged in our understanding of social class oh that's such a great question yeah i mean reality tv again it takes us places i think that scripted tv doesn't take us it takes us in some ways on a tour of the class system you know you mentioned regular people you mentioned the rich but i mean also they show us working class people which who aren't often seen um on script they don't often show us the very poor and if they do usually it's in service to like the main character like the kardashians go volunteer to soup kitchen kind of thing right exactly Exactly. Um, but I think, you know, I think they show us, right, not only the different, like, class statuses that exist that we all kind of already know about, I would hope, but also the kind of narratives that we tell about people in certain class statuses and the narratives that we use to kind of keep that class system kind of chugging along, right? That rich people are rich because they deserve to be in that position, right? They're sitting behind a table wearing a suit barking orders, or if not, or if they don't deserve to be there, right, because they're women or they're people of color. So people decide that they shouldn't they shouldn't be in that. But basically, they're not white men. Right. And they don't deserve to be in that place. Then we tell narratives about them being kind of buffoons, which, you know, I think is why you get a lot of those shows where it's like elite kind of black women, but portraying them sometimes in buffoonish ways where that you don't see that kind of show about white men. That's so interesting. And like, you know, the other draw of reality TV is about relationships and couples, whether it's courtship, whether couples in crisis. Well, I guess there's shows now that are about people with children, even though I'm like, who's going to watch this? <laughs> when you're living it, I'm like... When you're living it, no. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't watch reality shows with people with kids because I'm like, wait, I could just be doing this myself. But all of this is to say that in your previous research, you looked at dynamics of couples. What are some of the the couple stuff or the relationship stuff that is particularly appealing to audiences, do you think, 
when they watch, you know, whether it's The Bachelor or Love is Blind, which season two kind of rocked my world. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because as zany as these shows are, they almost always hang their hat on love, right? Like, it's that's almost always seen as, like, the ultimate goal. And it's oftentimes this, like, what we call homophilous love. So it's, like, between people who are socially similar. So it's often, like, people of the same roughly age, race, like, class status. And, you know, just like in life, we tend to think about, like, relationships, right? The ultimate goal being love and marriage. Not everybody all the time, but that's still, like, a really dominant narrative, right? That if you're going to be in a relationship, you have to be there for the right reasons, right? In life and also on reality TV. And the, the ultimate right reason being like, okay, this is a pathway to marriage. And yes, fewer people are getting married now. People are getting married later now. But by and large, a majority of people, a large majority of people still get married at some point in their lives. So we still kind of continue to hang our hat on these ideals of love um, and marriage. And it's so interesting to me that in, even in the reality TV sphere where people are like dating in bunkers and wearing prosthetic noses, right, they really can't get away from that idea of that being the ultimate goal, this sort of marital union dichotomous, right, two people and that is centered around the idea of love, which is very historically and culturally specific because that isn't how, we, how we've always thought of marriage, but it's how we think of it today. So before we head out, we want to give some recommendations. Professor Lindemann, what are you loving right now? So, you know, I've been asked this before and it's really horrible because my semester just finished and when I'm teaching, I don't have time to watch any reality TV. But I can tell you what I'm looking forward to watching, which is the number one show I get recommended is Selling Sunset. Oh my gosh, it's bananas. I don't understand anything that's happening, but things are happening. (laughs) But things are happening and it's good. Everyone tells me, and I think a lot of people, like, I'm like, I don't care about real estate. They say, doesn't matter. You don't need to care about real estate. Everyone's working and no one's working. It's the perfect show. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, so that's number one on my list of something I hope to be loving in the immediate future. And so my other interest other than reality TV is kind of its, um, I guess, cousin, which is true crime. I know it's so problematic, but there are some people who do true crime really well. And I highly recommend a limited series podcast from Jillian Pensavale of the True Crime Obsessed Network called Let the Women Do the Work, which are thoughtful conversations about women who are advocates for the wrongly accused, who are storytellers um, of groups like Indigenous um, women who are missing and murdered. She has an interview with Rabia um, Chaudhary, who has been the advocate for Andan Syed from the Serial podcast. It's so it's a really thoughtful podcast generally. True Crime Obsessed is both funny and very thoughtful about the representations of true crime. And this special series from Jillian Pensavale, Let the Women Do the Work, brings a lot of the quiet contemplation of what does it mean for women to really advocate in this space. And so I highly recommend it. It comes out every week. I love the conversations. And I think that in many ways, you know, reality TV and true crime are marketed towards women. Um, have this really kind of highly feminized type of storytelling, but people who are particularly politically minded or really thoughtful can really help us see the layers in it. And just like our guest today, Danielle Lindemann, author of the new book, True Story, What Reality TV Says About Us.
that's our show this week. The Waves is produced by Shana Roth. Shannon Paulus is our editorial director with Alicia Montgomery providing oversight and moral support. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at thewaves at slate.com. The Waves will be back next week. Different hosts, different topic, same time and place. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over by law, 18 plus, terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.